Welcome back, back, back to Young Money Mindset, hosted by Luke Caricia and Robbie Holtcross. From, from the ground up, where we talk about mindset, real estate, the hustle, and everything to help you achieve your dreams. All right, everyone, welcome back to Young Money Mindset. Today we have Sean St. Clair and Andy Fowler on the podcast. So thank you both for coming in so much. We really appreciate you guys coming in the studio. Um, jumping right into it, I know if you guys want to give a little background on who you guys are and what you do in real estate industry, that would be great. So uh, I'm a partner with the law firm of Fowler St. Clair, and uh, I've been practicing uh, in the area of real estate basically since I was uh, done with law school. So it's been going on 20 years of, of practice. My first 15 years or so was uh, doing mostly real estate-based litigation. Um, and then I've transitioned my practice into 100% um, transactional work, so real estate transactions. And right now, um, my niche really is creative financing um, and working with investors on their transactions, on their contracts, on their business uh, and, and corporate structuring, even some of their estate planning work um, is what, what I'm primarily focused on these days. Well, that's awesome. And uh, I can attest to both of you as well. I've done worked with both of you and they're, they're great. So uh, Andy, why don't you fill us in a little bit on, on your background and then we can jump right into it. Yeah, sure. Pretty similar background. Uh, spent a lot of time in business, real estate, uh, litigation and transactions. And most of that time, or a lot of that time, was with Sean. We started out, the first law, law firm I worked in, Sean was a partner in. We merged with another law firm that we were both attorneys in, and you left for a little while, and then we met back up. So in the last, I don't know, 17 years, we probably worked 15 of those together. Um, I'm a partner with Fowler St. Clair, and my focus is primarily on real estate business, some estate planning, and then I do some small to medium-sized mergers and acquisitions for the, the purchase and sale of businesses. Wow, that's interesting. Okay. And uh, could you both or one of you explain what the difference between a litigation side of the business versus the transactional side? Because I know a lot of folks maybe watching the podcast today might not understand the difference between those two. Yeah, so litigation is basically disputes. Um, or lawsuits. And uh, so if there's any type of controversy that generally falls in the litigation category versus transactions is really just um, putting together documents, um, structuring uh, businesses, doing estate plans, those types of things that don't involve disputes. Normally people are on the same page when you're putting contracts and agreements and stuff like that together. Got it. Okay. So tell me which one I guess would be, I guess they're probably different, but I would imagine um, transactions are probably a little bit more enjoyable than always dealing with two, two arguing parties in a sense, but maybe not. Um, I guess really from my standpoint, I know I've done a, a little bit of business with you and um, kind of leaning more into the creative financing side. I know a lot of the folks today watching um, may or may not own real estate, um, possibly have looked into creative financing and understanding what exactly subject to is and what, what they hear probably a lot of, which is wraps, right? And I think 
in the industry, we kind of interchange those in a sense. Sometimes people say subject to when they mean a wrap or, or vice versa. So could you kind of break down what the difference just very, very, you know, 101, you know, subject to versus a wrap, and then we can kind of jump into each one of those. Well, I'll just start by saying at a minimum, a purchase or buying real estate subject to is just simply buying the real estate subject to existing loans. Wrap and wrap financing is really just a way to structure doing that. I'll let Sean go into the details of what that looks like. But subject to is really just the purchase subject to liens. Why don't you explain what wrap looks like? Yeah, so subject to, I mean, I'm not sure that, I mean, it's kind of a novel term, and and I'm not sure that there's been a formal definition provided to it. But my, when I talk subject to, I'm basically talking about acquiring some long-term interest in the property um, subject to the existing loans remaining in place. So that could be a wrap financing transaction where you basically take a warranty deed and you give the seller back a note and deed of trust, which says, I will pay your existing loan for you. It's going to remain in place. You're still going to be the borrower. It's still going to be a lien against the property, but I'm going to pay it and I'm going to guarantee my payment by giving you this note and deed of trust. And if I don't pay, you can come in and take me out. So that's one form of subject to. Another form, common form of subject to is an agreement for sale. Some states call it contract for deed, bond for deed, land installment contract. But it's basically saying, okay, the title, the, the deed is still going to be in your name, but I'm going to have a right to possess the property. I'm going to have a right to improve the property. I'm going to have the right to use the property as my own. And I will pay you um, according to this agreement. And that could mean I'm paying your, your lender on your behalf or I'm paying a servicing agent who then pays the existing lender. But we're going to keep the loan in place. But I'm going to take over the property. I'm going to pay you to do so. And then when I fully perform, then you give me the deed. And I then you know fully own fee simple title to the property. And then the third common subject to transaction is the long-term lease with an option to purchase. And so you say, okay, I'm gonna lease the property from you for five years, we're gonna keep the loan in place and maybe my lease payments um, is paying your lender. That's what I have to do every month. And if I don't pay your lender, then I breach the lease and you can kick me out. Uh, but I also, at some point, will have an option to buy. And maybe that option kicks in when um, I pay off your lender and I've performed under the option and then I have the right to have you convey title to me you know, under that option. There's a number of ways to structure the option, uh, and, and you can structure it however you want, but you've basically acquired a long-term possessory interest plus an option while keeping the existing loan in place. So you've basically taken the property subject to, even though uh, that one of the three has less of a title claim that you, you're given um, as, as far as the structure. Yeah, and holding that title, and I guess something that we hear a lot, right? We, I guess we're, you know, on the front lines of making these calls and reaching out and trying to really acquire these types of transactions. Uh, is this something new? Would you say subject to has been around for quite some time or as I feel like just recently, probably within the last two years, I'd love to hear both of your opinions on when this really more or less, I want to say, I don't know if it's the right term, but hit the mainstream, right? Where there seems to be a lot more folks talking about it, doing it, practicing it. Um, but is this something new or has this been around? I mean, both of you are experienced in what you've done. 
Um, have you been always doing these or is this, would you say something that's a little bit newer? It's definitely not new. I think it's, what's new is the terminology. Um, what we would have seen, or what I saw, for instance, a lot in the last Great Recession back in, after 2008 and 2009, I did a lot of agreements for sale, contracts for deeds. We would do some wrap financing transactions. If you would have asked anybody back then, what is a sub two, they would have had no idea what you were talking yeah. about. But even, even prior to that, whether it's agreements for sale, the idea of seller financing or carryback uh, carry financing, that goes as far back as, as the law, really, I mean, at the end of the day. So I think it's really just the terminology's new. It sounds cool. Yeah. It and sounds it, new and in vogue. And that's the thing, right? I think it's the new trendy trendy way to say it or what have you, you know, subject to, but in reality, it's, it's been around right a long time. And I, I speak with a lot of folks that are like, Hey, if you only saw these interest rates back in the day, you know, and we, we saw a lot more of this type of, of stuff. So I know we had discussed a little bit off air, you know, with the way interest rates are right now. Uh, do you think that's contributing to the reason why you maybe see an uptick in, in this new trendy terminology and, and more creative financing and how do you see that changing over time? Do you think that changes? Do you think maybe it's here to stay and we kind of, this is the new wave of transactions? Well, I, high, high interest rates is not a new thing, right? We've seen, the, the U.S. economy has seen high interest rates in the past. I think what is the new thing that we've never seen before is this idea of rising interest rates following a period of time of basically zero interest rates, right? I mean, the Fed brought things down to zero, and you had mortgage interest rates at 3 and 4%, and then subsequently followed by a time of high inflation. Usually, increases in interest rates, rising inflation, uh, and rising rates is a way, is, is really controlled destruction of the economy. That's what the Fed is trying to do. They're trying to take liquidity out of, a system, out of the system in order to bring down interest rates. Normally, that has the effect of crashing economies, you know, causing recessions and these kind of things. What I don't think was bargained for was this, this idea that, well, now we were all used to selling our homes, but we've got the 3 and 4% interest rate. Nobody wants to sell. And, of course, that when nobody wants to sell, that has an effect on supply. And when there's an effect on supply, supply and demand, that has an impact on price. Which then further kind of kind of adds fuel to that fire, right? Because now you have you a lower supply, maybe you have steady demand, but now prices are increasing. That coupled with the higher rate, right, makes it sometimes a little un unaffordable for your average buyer. So, I'm definitely curious to see how that that works out. I I totally agree with you. I think. Um, you know, when you go back to even the Paul Volcker days, right, when he had raised what the federal funds rate, I believe, back in the day, which kind of, from my understanding, caused caused rates to be higher. Um, but now, I mean, I guess is it is it really a perception thing where I mean, is seven six to seven percent mortgage rates are those high? No, <laughs> that's the that's the bottom line. I mean, you know, we were just talking ago, about this yeah, the other day, right? Yeah. Yeah, when, when Andy and I, you know, when 20 years ago when my wife and I bought our first house, it was like 6.5% and it wasn't a big deal. I mean, you know, we didn't think, oh, that was, you know, we thought, oh, that's okay. 
because my parents were paying, you know, 10, 12, 15% at one point, right? So six, six and a half sounded good. But we had this period, like Andy said, of time where we had these dirt low interest rates that we're probably never going to see again. And people recognize that. And there's a finite set of these loans out there. And every one of them that's paid off is one that's no more. And you don't want to be the one paying off your loan, right? You don't want to sell your house and pay off your, you know, two and a half, three percent interest rate. Because in essence, that's kind of like free money. I mean, that's really nothing as far as interest goes. And so why would you want to sell your house and lose that and then buy another house at six or seven percent? So the question is, is will the whole subject to thing be just an investor thing? Or will it start becoming more of a mainstream thing for somebody looking for their personal residence? And instead of them saying, well, I, I'm good going to the bank, getting six or seven percent, saying, no, I want to find a seller who has a house that I like, who's willing to basically convey their loan to me. Let me take over their loan along with their house. So now I'm paying the three percent and I, I, I'm not stuck with the six, seven percent loan. I think when we start seeing that mainstream is when you're going to start seeing the more of the supply available on the market because sellers might be saying, oh, well, if I can do that, then yeah, I'll unload this house over here because I can go pick up another 3% loan over here, right? That's when I think things are going to be kind of interesting. Like, what what does that look like? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, Sean. I think that's, you know, not even something that's crossed my mind, but you know, just anecdotally, I have seen, you know, advertised, you know, especially right now, you know, the agent that says 3% assumable mortgage, right? And that's really just being kind of advertised now. Now we both, you know, we all know, right, that that's different than buying it subject to, and that's something that we constantly battle, right? Is that that difference between actually assuming the loan and buying it subject to. But I think that's a very interesting point that you bring up that, you know, I guess that would really be the mainstream point, right? Where you have, you know, mom and dad, right, with a couple of kids that say, hey, you know, we will sell in Phoenix and go buy in South Carolina if we can grab a three or 4% rate and uh, relatively keep that payment and our purchasing power too. Maybe that's something too I think a lot of people think of is like, if we sell that, that, that you know, $400,000, $500,000 home, what does that do to our purchasing power when we move? Yeah. So that's that's a whole nother a whole nother issue, I guess. That well, and that I think you'll up. start to see more availability as, and we've talked about this too, as sellers start to get behind the idea that that mortgage that they hold at three or four percent is an asset, and it's something that they can use as leverage to get buyers to maybe kick in the purchase price that they originally wanted, right? And the, maybe in the conventional market they're not getting what they want, but if you've got a sub two buyer that comes in and says. You let me take this subject to your existing mortgage, I'll give you your asking price. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, we offer folks that all the time or even above their asking price we've done, you know, and just to try to sweeten the pot to see, hey, would they really consider this? So I think those are all really great points. Um, transitioning more to kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of subject to and really how that looks. I know we hear a lot on our end of, these limited power of attorneys and the assignment of the insurance and the promissory note and kind of the way everything works on that end. So if you could maybe spend, you know, a minute on just 
what that looks like, either from a seller's perspective or a buyer's perspective of what exactly is needed to complete that first subject to transaction. If you're out there and you know you hear these, these trendy words, subject to, what can someone do? What's a practical thing they can do versus just going online and Googling subject to documents? Yeah, so the, the process can look very similar to, to a traditional sale. Um, as far as the contract goes, um, if let's say the property is listed by an agent and the agent's um, broker wants to use the state form, you know, they could use the, the state form um, and then they could supplement that by, say, a wrap financing addendum, which has all of the provisions in there, um, you know, advising the seller of the fact that, hey, this loan's going to remain. It still has a due on sale clause. The lender could, you know, potentially foreclose. And uh, you're going to give the buyer, if the buyer's an investor, um, and, and, you know, you're going to give the buyer an, a power of attorney and assignment of insurance proceeds and authorizations to release information so that the buyer can access, you know, your loan information so that they can make the payments that they're required to make under the, the documents. Um, you basically do that and, and have those proper forms in place, and then you open escrow. And then uh, w once escrow is open, then you would um, provide the promissory note for the wrap financing to the um, seller, uh, the deed of trust to the seller, and then the seller would in turn execute the power of attorney, the assignment that's already listed out as like, hey, you're going to sign these before escrow, close of escrow. But you don't necessarily need the seller to sign them to get escrow open, right? You just need to, them to agree that we're going to sign these, you know, at the closing table. So then you get the assignment, the power of attorney, the other documents all signed by the seller. That's more of the investor type transaction, or maybe there's no agent involved, so the investor is going to have their own, you know, um, custom made purchase contract that they use along with a subject to addendum. Um, now, let's say uh, it's more of a traditional, like I'm a buyer and I'm going to buy my house from a seller, and the seller's willing, and they're not an investor, they're just selling their house to me as the buyer, and it's two individuals, consumers, doing the transaction together. In that case, it's going to look a little bit different because you're going to want to put a servicing agent in place where I, as the buyer, will make the payments to the servicing agent. The servicing agent does everything as far as taxes, insurance, payment to the other, um, to the existing lender, the whole thing. They kind of calculate all of that. They hold, you know, the deed of release and reconveyance. They hold the original promissory note. And, and since it's with a servicer, I don't need all of the authorizations to release information, the assignment, whatever. And then in that case, since you're dealing with two consumers, you want both the seller and the buyer to initial and say, hey, we understand the nature of this transaction. We understand that there's this due on sale clause. We, we understand what this means and you know, what that looks like. And, and um, you, you have to have all those disclosures because once again, it's more of a, um, a consumer transaction versus maybe one party being an investor as a, and, and another being the consumer where you want to make sure the consumer all understands as of course the investor should if they're doing the, that type of transaction. So that's kind of, it just really depends on the parties to the transaction, if you will. Um, and, and the type of documents you need to, 
to make the transaction work. Yeah, no, and I, I want to give you guys a shout out too and your guys' podcast, the InREM podcast. I can't tell you how much I've learned just by sitting down and listening to that because, you know, one thing that I really try to take to heart is the disclosure process, right? Because not only that you want to disclose it, but especially on our end when we're negotiating the deal, you know, when you send that contract to them, right, it, it kind of answers a lot of those questions that they're going to have prior. So they're going to see all those same disclosures. They're going to really understand what are their risks, you know, if they sit down and read those contracts. And I think that really helps us when we're out there trying to get these deals under contract is, hey, make sure you're, you're you know, utilizing your contracts and getting those to these folks, maybe even prior to them, giving you a hard yes, because mm-hmm. it could be that the difference between them really seeing the legitimacy of, okay, this are, these are my risks, this is what it looks like, from a, you know, a contract standpoint, and then that kind of allows them to interpret it and, and make their decision. So um, I guess what's, I don't know, it doesn't have to be creative financing, but what is a story maybe of a, of a bonehead move or something that we could do to provide value to someone out there that maybe is doing a deal or, you know, just a, a funny story in general that you have seen. I'm sure you guys have looked at a lot of different types of deals and, and been a part of a lot of different stuff. Anything that you can think of off the top of your head that you'd be willing to share today? Sure, I could start. The, 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 the one that first comes to mind, as an attorney over the years, I've also served as trustee for non-judicial foreclosures or trustee sales. Uh, so I've seen uh, a number of those. But one, and I've represented parties that have, and we both represented parties that have been in the middle of a foreclosure process. Uh, But one mistake that we've seen and that I've seen and dealt with, and it won't be the last time we've seen this, are parties who fail to do their due diligence. This would be an investor who's buying property to trustee sale, fails to do their due diligence on what lien that they're purchasing. Um, Finding out that what they purchased was the second position lien, for instance, and and we're talking about subject two and buying basically property at a trustee sale subject two, uh, probably have, have had a few examples of just dealing with that. Um, so that that is one area. If you're if you're looking at distressed properties and you're looking to buy at trustee sales, do the due diligence ahead of time. Another mistake I see that people make in that regard is they rely. They seem to rely initially pretty heavily on the trustee to provide them information and due diligence and thinking that the trustee is going to be able to get them into the property to tell them, you know, sweet information about the property and get them the hookup and everything else. And the trustee is not going to do any of that. Uh, but doing simple due diligence with title reports ahead of, ahead of time before buying property at a trustee sale. We've literally seen people buy the lien thinking they got a great deal and they bought a lien, but the deal wasn't as great as they thought. Yeah, and I, I maybe I've been guilty. I've gone down to specifically Tiffany and Bosco and gotten what's that TSG? Yeah, it's $30 check, and I've done that in a pinch. I don't know if you would recommend or, or not doing that, but I know it's saved my butt a few times, especially as I'm looking at something, and, and it's like, do you make a call, you know, especially if it's a quick, you know, quick transaction? Yeah, and then a savvy investor who understands the risk can can – bake that in and decide, but at least that's something to go off, like the trustee sale guarantee. That is something. Uh, The people that we've run into the problems with did nothing. They went in, 
probably read about it online. You know, the market was distressed, went in, bought a property, not realizing lien priority that there could be other liens, and there you go. Yeah. Yeah, and I uh, I know there's a meme going around right now that is like, you know, the you get the call, you know, you're a traditional real estate agent, and you get the call of someone that says, my uncle's brother's friend bought a foreclosure in 2007, so I'm waiting until I can buy a foreclosure. Um, and they're a, you know, a, a non-investor, right? So I'm buying it to live in and, yeah. um, maybe just not realizing, right. All the nuances that go into truly going down there and, and buying at, at a foreclosure auction or, um, so I guess what, what is something, um, I know we touched on the creative financing side, um, kind of switching to more of the wholesaling fix and flip business, something we do primarily too. Um, what would you say is something that a wholesaler should watch out for? Um, any liabilities? I know laws have changed in Arizona. Uh, I know with the AAR contracts, they did come out with the uh, um, additional clause addendum that now has the box, right, that says we're a wholesale buyer. Um, we primarily don't actually use that additional clause addendum. We just have it written into Section 8 of the purchase contract just because it's, it's not on a whole nother page. Um, I don't know if that's the right or wrong thing to do. Um, anything, any big landmines, anything you guys can say on the wholesaling side? Yeah, so you mentioned our in-rim podcast. We also do a, um, a program called the Creative Finance Collective where a bunch of attorneys just sit around uh, in this space, in the creative finance, sit around and talk about, you know, share some war stories, talk about some issues that they're seeing. And one of the things that came up the other night in that was assignments and um you know, poorly drafted assignments. And we've seen this where, um, you know, the assignment did what normal assignments do, which is they basically conveyed the entire bundle of rights to the contract to the assignee. The problem with that is, for example, you mentioned the AAR purchase contract, um, which has a uh, three-day cure notice. I personally like to, on wholesale deals, extend that out to 10 days, um, but it still has a three-day cure notice in any, any event. Now, if you assign that contract straight to an end buyer, an assignee, and then you say, okay, assignee, you know, here's the close of escrow date, and the assignee fails to perform by the close of escrow date, you want to be able to dump them immediately. But if you haven't reserved back your right for them not to benefit from the cure notice in the contract and provided that in the assignment, regardless of any other provision in the purchase contract, including the cure notice, they don't get one. And if they don't perform by this date, it reverts back to you. If you don't have that in there, then they have a right to sit around and wait for the seller's cure notice. And then you're like, you're stuck in the middle, like you're not performing. And they're like, well, Contract's still valid. The seller hasn't cured, and I get a right to wait for that. And then the seller, you know, potentially cures, and they don't still don't perform. And then contract's canceled, and you know, earnest money goes around, and you know that's just the way it it works, right? So what you have to do is you have to tailor that assignment and say, okay, I'm going to convey to you all of the rights to this contract, except your right to benefit from the cure notice. And if you don't perform by this date, boom, you're out, contract reverts to me. The other thing that you don't want to assign and make sure that you, you, 
you as the original um, buyer control is the right to cancel. So we've seen where the end buyer just wanted out and wanted their earnest money back. And so they've gone around the parties and said, oh, um, seller, you want to just cancel this deal? And they got together themselves and canceled it. But if you've assigned everything completely to that end buyer and not reserve the right to be, you know, kind of the middle person on the deal, you know, they do have a right to go around the, you know, original buyer and cancel the contract. Um, so those are, are, you know, some of the things that we see where it's like, oh, if that assignment was carefully drafted so that, you know, the, the end buyer only receives certain rights, then we would, you know, be in much better shape. Yeah, no, that's, I, I mean, that those are two things that I'm going to change <laughs> leaving this, the studio, because I think that is something that gets overlooked a lot of times, you know, folks just enter in these assignments thinking everything is going to go well until, you know, it comes close of escrow. And then they're like, wait, I have to actually cure them to get out of this. And, you know, it's a whole issue. Um, one I know that I did with you folks was uh, something a little bit different. I don't know. You guys might not remember it, but um, I had sent you guys um, an issue with a seller I had one time that the seller actually entered into a hundred year lease with their son. Mm. Um, and this was pre, what was it? Pre, yeah. Predated to our, our contract, um, which we thought was completely fraudulent. It was never disclosed, never told to us, but you know, it was a classic, you know, probably got a higher offer, got the knock on the door and, um, and got that higher offer. So, I know when I was going through that, that was something that I really had to learn was, you know, what rights do you have, right, as a buyer and what can you prove and what can can you not prove? And uh, I think it was something that uh, we have or that we added. I think, Sean, you had given me the, the legal language to include into Section 8 of the purchase contracts that says, I think, something more or less the lines of, you know, the property shall be delivered vacant and any and all leases should be disclosed or something along those lines, right, that really protects us from that particular right. thing. Because, I mean, here we are, a 100-year lease for $500 a month on a property that we're buying just mm -hmm. absolutely kills the deal. So there's a lot of those little things that you're going to see uh, in the real estate business. And unfortunately, right, there's bad actors in every industry. So um, speaking of that, is there just, you know, in closing here, is there anything that you want to share that might, you know, that that you may be able to help someone, um, either if they're a wholesaler or maybe they're an investor that wants to, you know, buy more properties, should they be protecting themselves legally with an LLC? Um, one anecdotal story on that is I, I had watched a presentation from an attorney uh, at a, a real estate event. And basically he was, from my understanding, a corporate uh, corporate attorney that used to specifically go after, you know, piercing that and, and going after these investors. And one of the stories he had mentioned was a lady that built an entire rental portfolio and her son, I think was driving in a vehicle drunk and accidentally had killed someone. Um, and they ended up taking, I think the mother uh, and really did, did some severe damage to their, their portfolio and what their assets were. And that's supposedly why he went to the other side after that and, and became um, an LL, you know, a, 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 I don't know what the exact term, but protecting investors against um, those types of things. So anything on the LLC side or 
on the protection side that we can take away uh, that would help us protect our assets once we do build them? I, well, I would say two important things, I think, for the investor that wants to get into the space and do this. One, unrelated to what you mentioned, but important, is make sure you're, and we've kind of t talked about it and danced around it, make sure the forms you're doing are good. Don't just get forms off the internet, right? Half the stories we go through and talk about on our podcast mm -hmm. are issues where people just got forms, and they didn't work through the details and everything else. But, but the other side of that is for sure the business structuring side of it, how, how you're going to own these properties, how you're going to operate uh, in business, because you don't have to say or do anything as to what you intend and how you intend to be in business. The law will impart that to you. You just engaging in an activity for profit is you being a sole proprietor, or if you're doing it with somebody else, you being a partnership. The law will tell you what you are if you don't say anything otherwise, and that's not going to provide any liability protection. So thinking through, thinking through what kind of liability shield that you want, how that's going to protect you, and, and planning through that, uh, and understanding, you, you mentioned piercing the corporate veil, understanding what is proper business management and or what are actions that can, can expose you to potential liability. And then on top of that, I'll let you address it, is just simple insurance, making sure you're insured correctly. That, that's the easiest part costs a little bit of money and making sure you got a good insurance agent, but that's probably the easiest one to do. And a lot of people, usually because of money, go cheap and skimp out on that kind of thing. I would imagine the, the, the illustration that you had given, had they been properly insured, they probably would not have had that problem. And that was, that was another big, big talking point of his is, was exactly that, Andy, was, you know, the insurance, you know, you can't just think that you have set up a business structure and forget about the other part of the equation. Yeah, there's no matter what we do from an asset protection standpoint and structuring, um, there's no replacement for insurance. And, you know, I recommend anybody who's starting to build a portfolio and starting to build wealth to um, not only have your primary insurance, but you should have an umbrella policy. And that umbrella policy should cover, you know, all of your business assets, you know, all of your real estate holdings, um, that should, you know, the minute you acquire a new property, you should be on the phone with your insurance agent saying, hey, add that to, to the umbrella policy, add this LLC to the umbrella policy. Because honestly, you know, if you have a $3 million, $5 million umbrella policy, there are not a lot of accidents that would occur that that policy would not you know, that, that that policy would not be enough to get you off the hook without them looking at anywhere else. I mean, bottom line is a personal injury attorney, uh, somebody injured in an accident, a family of somebody injured in an accident, you know, if $3 million were offered to them now to release the insured, to release you, the business owner, from full liability, or... They could roll the dice, go to trial in two years, and maybe get that insurance policy and then some. Like, what would, what are they going to take? They're probably going to take the $3 million if offered and release you from all liability and, and go away. I mean, because that's a hefty sum. And, you know, 
8% of personal injury claims, there's nowhere near $3 million worth of coverage out there, you know? So they're like, you know, jumping up and down, like, you know, the per per plaintiff's personal injury attorney is like, oh, three billions worth, you know, that that's a lot of money for them, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, you yeah. know, if they're on a contingency. So, you know, they're looking to get access to the policy. They really, at that point, don't care much about the other assets, you know? Yeah. And so that's the thing to consider is, you know, making sure you're properly insured and then also operating, like Andy said, in a business structure, you know, have... LLCs that are owning the property, um, as we were talking offline, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts on how to do this. Um, and the more, from a legal standpoint, the more asset protection you have, the more hassle it is to maintain it. And so, you know, sometimes there's that balancing act of, okay, do I really, if I have 30 properties, do I really need every property to be in a separate LLC? Well, from an asset protection standpoint, and, you know, if I'm your attorney, I'm saying, well, that's the best you can have. But that's a lot of hassle, right? That's 30 bank accounts and 30 EIN numbers and 30, you know, potential tax returns and 30 this and 30 that. And it's like, that's a lot to maintain and deal with, as opposed to maybe looking at, okay, how much equity per entity am I willing to put in there and risk? And so maybe you put five properties in one LLC because... Each property only has forty thousand in equity, so you're like, oh, okay, worst case scenario, I'm, I'm risking two hundred thousand, but that's it, you know. But I'm protecting all these other properties over here, if if that makes sense. So yeah. There's kind of this balancing act of asset protection versus the you know hassle of of the whole situation. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and uh, one thing you know that that was also said is, is, is there some sort of form or way that people can access, right? Cause I know we had talked about a little bit off air of that, you know, being anonymous, right. And, mm -hmm. and kind of making it more difficult for when that person does go in this particular story that I had told, I think the lady actually had everything, you know, kind of out in the open more or less when you walk into that personal injury attorney's office and they're like, so-and-so, right, did this thing, mm -hmm. you know, it's very easy to find, oh, wow, they own X amount of dollars in real estate and they own this and that. So is that part of the asset protection plan, I would imagine, is to have that, that Delaware LLC or there, I know there's certain states that offer that. Yeah, it can be, but it's not required. Um, so uh, if you, um, you know, are good about uh, keeping corporate formalities and, you know, bank accounts and not commingling assets and you do all of that, there is a corporate veil that kicks in that separates your business assets from your personal assets. And then it separates, you know, this LLC's assets from this LLC's assets, which is why you put different properties in different LLCs, um, as opposed to the story you were saying with this lady who put everything in one LLC, um, you know, you would want to separate it, it out so that, you know, worst case scenario, just one was you know, at, at risk. So technically you don't need anonymity for asset protection. Anonymity is not asset protection. Anonymity is more of a deterrent. Um, and so, yes, uh, you know, if you want to make sure that nobody knows who the individual behind the structure, um, then by all means, um, you know, go form a Wyoming or Delaware LLC that will be the holding company of your local, your, your state-specific LLCs that are going to then hold the property in that particular state. 
Because what you don't want to do, and Andy and I have seen this, this is another story where, um, you know, I have a Delaware LLC and I think, oh, great, it's anonymous. So I'm going to buy an Arizona property in the name of that Delaware LLC, right? And then all of a sudden something happens and I have to evict my tenant, which means I have to go and access Arizona courts. Well, Arizona says, hey, as a Delaware LLC, uh, you can own property here and that's fine. You can buy and sell real estate. You don't have to register to do business. But the minute you want to access our courts, you do. And so you want to come in and evict that tenant? Okay, well, now it's time to register to do business in Arizona. Well, Arizona is not anonymity. So for you to register and do business here, you have to disclose the, mem the owners of your Delaware LLC, the managers of your Delaware LLC, and bye-bye anonymity at that point, right? So what you want to do is have the Delaware LLC own the Arizona LLC with for example, our law firm will do this. As the counsel for the Arizona LLC, we will sign and file the articles with the Corporation Commission, and we can use our firm's address. We'll be listed as data agents. So anyone looking at the Arizona LLC is like, oh, Fowler St. Clair, on behalf of one of their clients, formed this LLC. And then you're like, okay, well, the owner of the LLC is this Delaware LLC. And then you go to Delaware, and you're like, well, Delaware doesn't even keep records of who owns the LLC. So you stop there, right? So you don't see who's behind it. Yeah, there's a deterrent effect. Um, where I've really seen that come into play um, is, and you'll appreciate this as a real estate licensee, um, is the, um, if you're, you have your investment business, right? And, you know, you end up accidentally cold calling somebody on the do not call list and they get all fired up, you know, they should, and, 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 or maybe they will send you a demand letter saying, hey, I want my 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks for your violation or whatever. Okay, you can figure that out, right? Well, what if they see your LLC and go and look behind it and be like, oh, that's owned by Luke. And Luke is licensed with the Department of Real Estate. You know what? I'm going to really create a problem for him. Even though it's not going to stand, they go to the Department of Real Estate and they file a complaint against your license with the Department of Real Estate because you violated the federal do not call list. Well, ultimately, the Department of Real Estate is going to be like, yeah, that's not our jurisdiction, but only after they do an investigation. So you're going to get a, a letter from an investigator saying a complaint's been filed. Please submit your response, which you probably would want an attorney to file a formal response and explain why you know, it's not an issue and the department shouldn't be doing worried about it and, you know, the whole thing. But now you're paying attorney's fees. Now you're dealing with a license complaint versus had you had that anonymity, they would have never known Luke was behind the LLC that called them. You that's, see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. So to me, that's kind of where the I, I see the anonymity really being critical is, you know, can they really make my life unnecessarily difficult if they know who's behind it? Yeah. Right. Well, and I, and I think too, that's just something that happens maybe as you get to scale in business and we could go that route, but like as your business grows and things get bigger and bigger and more folks get involved and more transactions start happening, right? You start increasing that likelihood of something like that happening. And it's understanding what it can and can't do. So going back to your personal injury example, if let's say 
they came to you and your policy limits were $100,000 and they had a million dollars in damages, they, the insurance company would say, well, you've, all we got is 100000 There be And what they, not might, but what they would say, the lawyer would say, okay, that's fine. We'll take the hundred. Now we need you to sign this affidavit disclosing that you don't have assets in excess of the policy limits. <laughs> well, it, you could have had everything anonymous from the beginning, and that's fine, and they not, didn't know about that, but now you're in a position in a personal injury context of having to disclose. Well, if you lie about that, that's fraud. You don't want to do that. So you're going to have to disclose those assets anyway in that context. So that would be an example of why anonymity in that case, somebody shouldn't see anonymity as a way to, oh, I can save some money on insurance or this other business planning. It can save me in hassles in other areas, but people are still going to have the right to ask and, and not settle if they don't want to on a personal injury claim if I can't show that my assets are not less than the policy limits. Yeah, and in, and in that example, you would disclose, and then would they just come after, right? Is they wouldn't settle. Exactly. They would yeah, you individually. Right, okay. Yeah. And then they would probably, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Learned so much. I really appreciate you guys coming on, and it's always a pleasure to have you guys here in the studio and, and have an hour of your time, so I can't thank you guys enough for that. And uh, anyone out there that uh, has any, you know, questions, concerns, you know, feel free to get in touch with their office. Um, they have a really good receptionist that'll be able to get you guys scheduled for a consultation call. Uh, I know your guys' calendar is usually pretty available on there to jump on a, on a call and make sure you guys schedule that. I've made the mistake of not doing that and uh, wanting to pick up the phone and talk to them, but realizing it's 4 o'clock on a Thursday and <laughs> you're probably looking, uh, looking at having to schedule it down the road. So um, make sure you guys are doing that. It's really been one of the best investments I've made is, is by retaining their law firm. And, uh, just, I would even encourage you if you don't have any legal issues, just to schedule a consultation and ask them questions about different things, I think is, is a great use of your, your money. So, and we have hours of free content on YouTube <laughs> yes. at no charge. Yes. <laughs> and, and do that too, because there's tons of value um, on, on both of those ends, podcast and your guys' the creative finance uh, synopsis, which you'll be able to find on Facebook, I believe is usually where I see YouTube, it. YouTube, yeah. Uh, yeah, we have uh, on our in-rim, it's the in-rim podcast. If you go to YouTube, you type in in-rim podcast, you'll see all of our episodes, you'll see our shorts, you'll see, I mean, we have, what, uh, tons of it. Content. Yeah, live shorts, all all that content. You can find it on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. It's all at InRem Podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again. Appreciate you guys coming in studio. And thank you guys so much for watching the Young Money Mindset Podcast. Hopefully today's provided value to you and you had a couple of key takeaways. If you can, take one thing from today's podcast, go implement it in your business, and we'll see you guys out there.